0: This is a complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to freesoundeffectslibrary.net Hello, I'm Alistair Bridge, and you're listening to Unlocked World with Alistair Bridge. It's been lovely to hear all of your kind words about the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, thanks for getting in touch, and thanks for making a confined man feel a little more connected to the world. Now, uh, it must be said that uh, over the past few weeks I have become more than a little obsessed with download figures and chart placements in this brave new world of podcasting. Last night I received an email communication notifying me that this podcast was at number 82 in the world in some category or other, and uh, this may have precipitated a celebration of a magnitude perhaps unwise for the day before the next podcast was due to be recorded and delivered. I am sincerely very sorry for the delay. Now, on to today's episode. Uh, Today's piece is from a trip that I took to Astana, now renamed Nur-Sultan, the capital of Kazakhstan, to attend the opening of an architectural marvel. So let's take a trip to Astana. Nur-Sultan. Upon realizing The breadth of his domain, Alexander the Great is said to have wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. I imagine that this too is how Nur-Sultan Nazarbayev, the President of Kazakhstan, felt upon the completion of the Khan Shatir, the world's largest tent. Commissioned by President Nazarbayev in 2006 and designed by my good friend Sir Norman Foster, the Khan Shatir is now complete and ready to receive guests. Don't be fooled by the word tent, This is no zip-up, shoes-off-in-the-porch canvas job. The Khan Shatir stands at over 490 feet high in old money and 150 metres in new money and covers an area of over 10 football pitches. Across this vast area, it plays host to a theme park, a cinema and an artificial beach amongst many, many other things. What's more, the fabric of this construction must be able to withstand temperatures from 40 degrees Celsius to minus 40 degrees Celsius. (laughs) That's a greater temperature variance than even my wife is capable of. Don't worry, she stopped reading my columns in 2007. Having witnessed the majesty of his creation, President Nazarbayev has invited the great and the good of Central Asia, alongside yours truly, to the official opening of The Wonder, which is why I find myself taking a taxi from my hotel in Astana to take in The View on the 4th of July 2010, a day prior to the official opening. The Khan Shatir rises like a mighty spike out of the ground and is as imposing as it is impressive, its mighty transparent sheets draped out of the central spire giving outside observers a glimpse of the many floors of entertainment to be found within, a yurt of earthly delights. Whilst gazing at the Khan Shatir, I recall that when I was ten years old I was permitted to pitch a tent in the grounds of our home for the first time and sleep beneath the stars for a night. My father had sourced a mid-sized tent for me to stay in, not a single birth affair of course, but a tent with multiple rooms, like one could imagine taking to the deepest, darkest Congo to observe ape behaviour or some such. With my tent set, my father, mother and groundskeeper retreated back to their respective abodes, the groundskeeper to his hut, father to the house and mother to her annex, and I was left to wander the rooms of my tent, all empty as day's waning light cut through the trees to etch bewildering shapes upon the canvas. Friends had of course been invited, but all had stacked diaries and so were unable to attend. I settled into one of the tent's chambers to read some Sherlock Holmes stories by torchlight and eventually drifted to sleep. I awoke in the night due to some strange presence. I was unable to find my torch, but above us hung a bright crescent moon which provided sufficient light for me to find my way out. On the outside I was greeted by a deeply strange sight. Where once my tent had been surrounded by a good stretch of clear lawn, it was now beset by a multitude, perhaps thirty, of what appeared to be large, smooth, rounded rocks. I became deathly afraid. How had they come to be there? Were they sentient? Could one map human urges and desires onto their motivations? And if so, what did they want? One of the rocks closest to me began to change shape. From its side rose a long, almost limb-like appendage, coming to a point at the end. As the moonlight caught it, I saw a gleaming black gem, an eye. Transfixed and stupefied by terror, I could only breathe short, sharp, shallow breaths as the other rocks were likewise transformed and soon the thirty or so rocks were all beholding me with their gleaming, blinking eyes. As my eyes continued to adjust to the scene, I gradually became aware that these were not rocks, but geese. They began to rise from their curled sleeping positions onto their feet, and at long last I let loose a scream. Some minutes later the groundskeeper comes to get me, In the morning my father, having been apprised of the details of the event, decrees that I will sleep in the garden for the next week until I have stopped being such a big girl's blouse. (laughs) A passer-by shakes me by the shoulder and, in broken English, informs me that I have been gently whimpering whilst beholding the Khan Shatir. I do my best to explain to her that this is not a mental episode, but merely an experience of the sublime brought on by the mighty form of the tent. She is uninterested and hurries away. I taxi back to my hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, and have a little straight nap. As there is a full day before the opening ceremony, I am scheduled to meet with an old friend and business contact, Ruslan Shermatov, who is eager to show me what Kazakhstan's capital has to offer in terms of entertainment, whilst also giving me the opportunity to meet with some of his business partners. With the thought of inviting me having slipped the mind of my good friend Sir Norman Foster, it was Ruslan who fixed me up with my invitation to the opening of the Khan Shatir, clearly also hoping to use the occasion as an excuse for a good catch-up. Ruslan picks me up out of the front of the Ritz in his limousine and greets me warmly with an affected British accent. Alistair, how the devil are you, old bean? Not bad, you effing Ruski. I fire back. And just like that, it feels like we are back in our twenties. Interning at City of London Investment Bank. First, we stop at Resto Bar, a gastropub type affair in the centre of town, which is a delight with its tasteful furnishing and blandly inoffensive mural. Here we are joined by Ruslan's associates Timur, an Uzbek with whom Ruslan is working to improve trading relations between their two nations, Azizbek and Balta, who are both on the boards of large mining corporations. Sanzar, whose role is not immediately obvious, but who is very large. And Edward Walbeck, who is attached to the embassy here in Astana. Edward and I recognise one another as we have attended a few British Kazakh society dinners back in London, and he is initially wary of me due to some past indiscretion which, whilst it clearly has made no impact on me, has been seared into Edward's mind quite deeply. By way of apology I say, no hard feelings old fella, slap him on the back and offer to buy a round of drinks. "'Swizindadin dongalegi, I shout to our waiter, having done some rudimentary research on the Kazakh language. The waiter looks at me, incensed, before Ruslan has a brief chat in Kazakh and the waiter smiles and leaves. Ruslan turns to me and explains that, although I have attempted to say a round of drinks, my pronunciation was so bad that our waiter had assumed that I was attempting to curse her. At this point a round of vodka is served. I grab mine, shout Salem, and knock it back. Ruslan gives me a look that is somewhere between withering and pitying, but is soon in a jovial conversation with Timur. I eavesdrop a little as I wait for our next drinks and must confess to finding it a little difficult to pass. Timur, it turns out, is big in Uzbek cotton manufacture and Ruslan is jokingly asking how the slaves are. As Timur sees my loitering on the outskirts of the conversation, he looks a little chastened for reasons which are unclear to me, until Ruslan explains that the Uzbek cotton industry is presently the target of pernicious and wholly false rumours around the majority of its labour force being comprised of child slaves. I make a mental note to call my accountant and divest my portfolio of any Central Asian cotton interests on my return home before realising that if one were to take such rash action every time one heard about cultures of negligence, racism or child slavery in one's stock, there would be very, very little left to invest in. Flicking through my mental Rolodex, I mentioned to Timur that I happen to have a friend who runs a consultancy back in London who is perfect for this sort of thing and that I can put them in touch. I am unsure whether the word greenwashing is necessarily appropriate when that which is to be washed is child slaves, but my meaning seems to be conveyed, Timur seems pleased, and more drinks arrive. By the end of our stay in this bar, I have agreed to invest in Balter and Azizbek's respective mines after they have given me assurances that the safety of workers is never put before the bottom line, and promised to lobby for the twinning of Astana with Liverpool. We move on, again in Ruslan's limousine to a bar of which Ruslan is an owner, which he has asked me not to name for fear of reprisals. Some hours pass, and much drink is drunk. By 1am we are back at Balter's mansion and playing poker. I must confess to being a little in my cups by this time, and my bets are becoming a touch extravagant. All in! However, my erratic play is working in my advantage, and I bully Balter out of a monstrous pot with nothing more than an off-suited three and nine. Balter is incensed by my gloating. "'Get this piece of shit out of my sight!' he shouts, in a tone which I am forced to concede is genuine frightening fury. Soon we have all been chased out of the house and are roaming the streets of Astana in high spirits, having swiped a few bottles of booze from Balter's bar before leaving. At this point, Walbeck announces that he knows where these sort of nights go with me and that he is having no part of it. He summons a diplomatic car, and heads off into the night. We brand him a coward and drink deeply of our bottles. Our rather circuitous route back to my hotel, where I have promised to lay on some entertainment provided that I am given the correct phone numbers, takes us across the path of some policemen on patrol. I am amused by the size of their hats relative to their heads. I ask Ruslan how to say pin-headed pigs in big balloon hats in Kazakh. Ruslan, perhaps unwisely, informs me. Whilst the alliteration is lost in Kazakh, I proceed to shout a butchered approximation of the phrase at the policeman. Understandably, they are angered. I would like to take this opportunity to apologise to any members of the force reading this. I have the utmost respect for the boys in blue who do a tough job in difficult circumstances. An argument erupts, and there is a good deal of shouting. Sanzar, who up until this point has drunk constantly but remained largely mute, steps forward and reveals himself to be from the Kazakh security services, draws a pistol and fires a round into the air. He advises the policemen to ignore us if they value their jobs. The police are quick to comply, turning their backs and walking the way they came. But I am in a petulant mood and chase them for a few meters, demanding to be arrested before laughing and falling What's over. What are you going to do, arrest me with this big silly hat? <laughs> My friends judge that it is time to get me home and dry me out ahead of the grand opening. The next day it feels very hot and I stand under the shower blasting cold water for 45 minutes. I realise that I have not brought anything that screams both formal occasion and suitable for heat. I make the very best of a bad situation and wear shorts, a linen shirt, cufflinks and a British Kazakh society tie. I arrange a cab to take me from my hotel to the Khan Shatir, but by this time I am running very late. Upon arriving, matters are not helped when it emerges that the security checkpoint through which I must pass is staffed by the two policemen whom I had goaded the night before. They quickly recognise me and, without Sanzar around, are emboldened. Making sure that I notice them fiddling near their firearms, they force me to find my Kazakh phrasebook in my bag and look up the Kazakh for sorry. Kshiriniz, I say. They pretend not to hear me. I repeat myself, but one of the policemen makes his radio make a loud alarm style noise. I say it again, however, this time my apology is obscured by an exaggerated coughing fit. <coughs> Exasperated, I shout Kshiriniz at a moment where all the hubbub around us has died down to nothing. My apology echoes around the large plaza in which the Khan Shatir is situated. Kshirinyaz! 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 It feels like everyone in Kazakhstan is looking at me. I blush. The policemen laugh. One of them snatches my phrase book off me, flips through it, finds what he is looking for, and calls me a prick before thrusting it back into my chest. By the time I am inside the tent, I have missed the headline performance from Andrea Bocelli. I seek out Ruslan whilst keeping an eye out for President Nazarbayev, who I'm keen to see in the flesh. I locate Ruslan around the model dinosaur park. In jest, I ask him, where the old dinosaur is, referring to Kazakhstan's first and only president. It turns out that he is behind me. I turn and lock eyes with the man who has ruled Kazakhstan for 20 years. It is fair to say that he is not best pleased. I am almost dragged off by the President's security detail, but Ruslan steps in and states that he will deal with me himself. He frog marches me from the tent and into his limousine which has been parked nearby. Ruslan is white as a sheet. In a tremulous voice he instructs his driver to take us to the airport. I detect that this is not the time to protest about my belongings left in the Ritz. Before long we are aboard Ruslan's private jet. The flight time with a refuelling stop is 11 hours but impressively Ruslan is able to avoid exchanging eye contact or words with me for the duration and i busy myself with the onboard bar at uk customs i am permitted to enter but it appears that ruslan is not so fortunate until next time i say unthinkingly i do not anticipate that there will be one says ruslan melodramatically okay. Since publication of that piece, Ruslan has unfortunately been imprisoned on unspecified charges and I have been ejected from the British Kazakh society. This July, Amnesty International are holding a vigil marking the 10th anniversary of Ruslan's imprisonment and lobbying for his release. I have been asked not to attend. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. It really does help to drive up those download figures. Until next time unlocked world this is a complimentary piece of music from free sound effects library Complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to Free Sound Effects Library.